0: Hey, good morning, Door Creek. Morning. Hey, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And it's a joy to be with you this morning as we sing Christmas praises. It's one of my favorite times of the year. love singing about Christmas because it reminds me what it's really all about, what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So only about 10 more days till Christmas. You ready? You ready? All right. So the ladies are like, oh, I have a little more to do. The guys are like, what Miss? What's what's coming up? Oh, Christmas. Yeah, guys, be honest. You're the Christmas Eve shoppers, aren't you? That's why Walgreens is open 24 hours. We keep them in business. Let's be honest. I, Door Creek, we have been getting ready for Christmas. This Advent season has been a great one. And uh, the Advent offering is just one example of what we do throughout the year that's a highlight as we collect funds to help others locally, nationally and globally so do prayerfully consider your end of your giving and hey by the way don't forget our regular ministry needs as well Um, we actually have had a pretty low giving quarter for whatever reason God knows we trust him but do prayerfully consider our regular ministry budget as you give as well and we trust God to lead all of us in that all right well I'm excited to dive into God's word with you this morning but before we do let's pause Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, we are so grateful for the gift of the Bible and that, Father, in it you give us clarity about who you are and what you desire for us in our lives. So right now I pray you would open our hearts and our minds, give us ears to hear your truth and make it clear how we can apply it today for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite jobs was my first job. My brother worked at a supermarket called United in Enid, Oklahoma. And uh, he put in a good word for me. He was older than me, about four years. And he helped get me a job at United. And my job there was to be a stockman and a carryout boy. And a stockman, you remember, this is back in the days when we actually priced every single item in the store. Yeah, we put a little sticker on everything. It tells you how old I am. Uh, and then we also bagged groceries. We actually put the groceries in a bag for people and carried them out to their car. We, we actually did that. And I love that job. It was a lot of fun. And one day in particular, it was an evening, it was kind of slow, I was in the back room, a stock room with a coworker, and we're walking through and we're chatting. And uh, we stopped and paused and as we're talking, I just kind of sat down on a group of boxes, probably boxes of cans. And after about 30 seconds to a minute, our manager walked in. And he was livid. He walks up and he says, what are you doing? Why are you sitting down? So you're not getting paid to sit down. You're here to work. But this is, you guys just need to clock out. You need to go home right now. And by the way, you need to come back tomorrow to find out if you have a job, which you probably don't. What? What just happened? I tried to talk to him and apologize. He would have no part of it. He said, clock out, go home. So I went home shaking, thinking I just lost my job. I just lost my first and favorite job. And came in the next day, had an appointment with the big boss. He was the manager of the whole store, Richard Pope. And sat across from him and he looked at me and said, Brad, you know what you did, right? I said, yes, I did. I was sitting down, I should not have been, I should have been working, should have found stuff to do, I'm so sorry. He said, Brad, you know the manager, the assistant manager, he wants me to fire you. He said, yes sir, I know that. And he paused, and he said, well Brad, I'm going to give you a second chance. Oh, thank you, yes. He said, but now, I want you to prove to me that I'm not making a bad decision right now. I expect you to work hard. And this should never happen again. And I walked out of there with my job. Not on probation, not on improvement plan, nothing. Clean, free and clear. And I realized, looking back on that, what an incredible gift Mr. Pope gave me. He was merciful. He didn't give me what I deserved. And he was gracious. He let me have a clean slate and start working like nothing had happened. Now, do you think I worked hard after that? You better believe I did. I came in early, I left late, I never said no, I took every shift they offered me, I became one of the hardest workers there, and it turned out to still be a great job. But I realized, looking back at that, that there are moments in our lives when we're confronted with grace in ways we never expected, and that was one of them for me. This morning, we're going to look at a story where some people were confronted unexpectedly by grace in a powerful way. And God is going to offer us some kingdom principles that can change our lives. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to make your way over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Now, we're continuing in a message series through the entire book of Luke. This has been a great study. Uh, In chapter 1, we learned that the author of the book of Luke was a physician named Luke. Call him Dr. Luke. And he he tells us why he wrote this book. In chapter 1, he tells us he wrote to a guy named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about him, but he says, Theophilus, I'm writing this book to you so that you may be certain about the things you've learned about Christ. That's the purpose of Luke, so that we can all be certain about who Christ was and what he did. Then in chapter 4, we're given a great gift by Christ who tells us his purpose for coming to earth where Jesus says he came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he said he's going to do that through preaching the good news and delivering the oppressed and the poor. And so we use those two pieces as a foundation for everything we learn about in the book of Luke. It's very helpful. So as we make our way to chapter 7, we're going to look at the last section of that chapter, verses 36 through fifty. Um, But before we do, I want us to take a moment to put into context our passage. So it's always helpful when we're studying the Bible to look at what happened right before what we're reading and what came after. Because it helps us get the full picture of the section of the book or even the whole Bible. So if you look with me at chapter 7, verse 29, we learn some important information about our verses. It says, All the people, even the tax collectors, When they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John the Baptist. So we're learning here that there are a group of Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees, experts in the law, who heard the message of John the Baptist and Jesus, but they rejected it. He goes on to say in verse uh, 32, he said, They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other, We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. What's he talking about there? Well, he's referring to the message of John the Baptist and Jesus. And what we learn about their messages is their messages were the same but they were delivered very differently. So you have John the Baptist, he's a camel hair wearing guy who never cut his hair. He lives out in the wilderness. He eats locust, and the guy has a strong message, which is basically repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, or else. Right? It was a turn or burn message. It was hail, fire, and brimstone. He did not hold back. Strong message. Probably a strong odor, wearing camel hair, living in the wilderness. You know, strong. He says, he's the dirge guy. He sang the dirge. And you did not mourn. And then the first part is we played a flute for you. That's Jesus. So you have John the Baptist and you have Jesus who's like, hey, let's go to dinner. Let's hang out. Let me tell you a story. That's Jesus. Totally different way. Same message. And what the scripture says is these Pharisees rejected both of them saying, well, John the Baptist is weird. He lives in the wilderness and grows his hair. He's strange. And Jesus is weird. He hangs out with sinners and goes to parties where there's wine flowing. He's a drunkard and a glutton. And then Jesus ends the section by saying this, verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Which is kind of Jesus' way of saying, hmm, we'll see. Let's see what happens. Let's see who responds to this message. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage. We're going to see the response of two different people to the message of grace. All right, so the first book in is rejecting Pharisees. Hold that in your mind. Now let's walk over to the other side of our passage, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Uh, this is the other book and it says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So we're given a list of women who came from all different walks of life, all of whom had been encountered by Jesus' message about the kingdom of grace. In here we have a woman who dabbled in the demonic arts or whatever. She was possessed, had been delivered by seven different demons. Another was a prostitute, delivered out of an immoral life. Another was the wife of a government official. That's interesting. And she's supporting him out of her own means, which means a government of Rome was supporting Jesus' ministry. It's kind of interesting. Um, But the picture we get is here's a group of people, unexpected people, impacted and changed by God's grace, who responded and are serving Jesus and his ministry, even supporting it out of their means. Another great picture to hold in mind as we move in now to our text, as we're invited to a dinner party with Jesus. And let's read together, beginning in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them Hmm, interesting so here we are in the house of pharisee we've learned that his name is simon now kind of to set the scene this was probably somewhat of a typical dinner party in this day where you had invited guests who have come and they're reclining around the table now to understand what that looked like in the near east a table was about 18 inches off the ground and people would be probably be sitting on cushions, reclining. And a reclining position would look like probably a left arm on the table. And your legs kind of wish out back behind you. And then you would eat with your right hand. That was a common way, still is, in the Near East, to eat a meal. And we would know that there would be specific invitations that would go out. These people would come and would be eating. But there's another thing we learn about... Dinner parties, when an important guest came to a home, they would often leave the door open, which means they would allow other people who weren't invited to come in and stand around the table or stand at the door or at the window and just listen in on the conversation. It was very common in that day. And we find out from our passage there were other people present, other guests, and we learn about this woman, the sinful woman who comes. Now, it was not common, though, For these uninvited guests who are listening in to interact or to interrupt. They were just there to listen. They could listen as long as they were quiet. So here we are. Jesus is reclining. He's having a conversation. And then this woman comes in. what do we know about this woman? Well, Scripture says that this woman was a sinful woman. Not only is she sinful, but she's known in the town to be a sinful woman. She's a notoriously sinful woman. What does that mean to be a sinful woman? Well, we, we don't know exactly. Could mean she was a prostitute. Could just mean she lived a promiscuous lifestyle. But what is clear is that the whole town knew that she was that kind of woman. She was a sinful woman. And there was no question in anyone's mind. And so here she is. She's come to the house. She's heard that Jesus has come to town. She's probably heard about this man who preaches this message, this good news, that God has come for all people. She's probably heard that he he actually heals people with diseases. In fact, I heard he touched a leper. He also helped a prostitute woman get back on her feet, and she's actually traveling with him. And I, I want to meet this man. I I want to be close to him. And in fact, that's what she does. She makes her way into this party and is standing at his feet, and we're told that she is... Weeping. Not just weeping, but she's boohooing because her tears are flowing. So much so that she's able to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. In our sermon discussion guides today, you should have received as you came in. A Phil Evans helps us write those. He asked a great question in there. He asked, How many tears would it take to wash someone's feet? How long would she have to stand there weeping? to be able to wash someone's feet. It's a long time. It's a lot of tears. And then we're told she gets on her knees and she uses her hair to wipe his feet. She doesn't stop there. says so she kisses his feet. And then she's brought this perfume, this alabaster jar. That was kind of common in that day, that perfume was, a nice expensive perfume was held in these alabaster jars. They were kind of large. They held about 16 ounces, and they were usually imported. Like, one particular type we learn about is nard. And nard was imported from India. And it was expensive. And 16 ounces of that would have been somewhere around a year's worth of wages. So here she is, she's pouring out this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And this is the scene we arrive at in this dinner party. Um, And you need to know... This was not normal. This was shocking behavior in many different ways for many different reasons. First of all, this woman, we're told she uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. That means her hair is down. You didn't do that in this culture. Women kept their hair up or covered. And the only man that saw your hair was usually a family member or your husband. You certainly didn't show it in public. Not only that, you didn't rub your hair on a man, not in front of people. That's not appropriate. So everyone, like mouth open, jaw down, it's like, what is going on here? Not only that, this crying and the weeping, she's not an invited guest. She should not be interrupting. And the kissing and the touching. Women didn't touch men in this culture, especially a woman of her reputation touching a man of Jesus' reputation. It didn't happen. And then finally, it's pretty shocking that she's pouring out this expensive perfume. I mean, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. That could be used for a lot of different things. And she's pouring it out. All of it. 16 ounces. Think about that. How many of you have stood behind somebody in the grocery store with too much perfume on? Come on. And if you haven't, then you're the one wearing too much. Stop it. Yeah, you know, it's just like, oh. And so, then we see Simon here. In a minute, we're going to look at his reaction. But first, something just jumps out at me in the text. A kingdom principle that Jesus is teaching is this. That there's no amount of sin that can stop the saving grace of God. When you look at this woman, her life, what do we know about her? Well, was she abandoned? Was she abused? Did she just make a bunch of really bad decisions in life? We don't know. But what we do know is that she has a bad reputation. People avoid her. They cross the street so they don't have to pass her. They wouldn't touch her. I mean, can you imagine what that's like? And here Jesus is allowing her to worship and show gratitude, forgiving her, restoring her. And I realize that that's true for all of our lives, that there's no hole too deep that we dig in our lives that the saving hand of God can't redeem us and save us. Isn't that good news? And there may be some here today that actually really identifies with with this woman for different reasons. And if God can restore her, she can restore you. I know many of us pray for family members and friends that are far from God. And if you're like me, sometimes I wonder, I don't think they're ever going to come to Christ. But I'm reminded from the story that there's no such thing as a lost cause with Christ. Anyone can be redeemed by the grace of God. They'll only have faith in Christ. Well, so the sinful woman is a major player in our story. There's another one. His name is Simon. And here we see Simon and his reaction to this woman. Read with me, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. So Simon is not happy. He's not happy. He's bobbing and weaving. He's looking at this woman. What is she doing? He's probably frustrated. She wasn't invited to my party. She certainly shouldn't be touching my guest and interrupting us. And then this perfume, which if you can imagine, it's just filling the house. This odor. It's on Jesus' feet, probably on his clothes. It's all over the floor. It's on her hair. I mean, it's just pungent. Probably to the point where it was hard to eat. It was so strong. So here's Simon. Is, what is she doing? She's ruining my party. And then we see what he really thinks of her, too. He judges her, doesn't he? He says, this is what kind of woman she is. And if Jesus knew, he would never touch her, because I wouldn't touch her. She's a whole different class of person. He categorizes her puts her way down below him, elevates himself. He doesn't know anything about her except her reputation, yet he judges her. Not only that, he judges Jesus. And his thinking is that if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who she is. Because that's what prophets do, right? Prophets know the message of God and then they share it. So if he was really a prophet, he would know who she was. If he knew she was, he would not touch her. Therefore, since he's touching her, he's not a prophet. That's his logic. And it never occurred to him to think that Jesus could be a prophet, could know who she was, and actually choose to touch her. Never occurred to him. So here he is, and by the way, he's concealing these thoughts. The scripture said he said this to himself. He didn't say it out loud. So he had to be shocked when he heard Jesus' response. As we're told in verse 40, Jesus answered him. Whoa, wait a minute. He's probably thinking, did I say that out loud? I thought I was thinking it. Jesus answered his thoughts. He read his mind. Which just ironic he's saying Jesus doesn't know, and now he knows his thoughts. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, Jesus uses lots of different methods for teaching about the kingdom of God. He would often read the Old Testament scripture and explain it. He would do miracles and use that as a teaching lesson, um, heal people. Um, he loved to tell stories, and parables were a favorite of his to tell a story, to teach a lesson or a principle. Uh, but usually he would teach for all to hear. But this is unusual. Jesus singles Simon out, speaks his name and says, Simon, this message is for you. Very direct. Very direct. And then Jesus sets out in the next two verses to tell a parable or a story that then he applies to Simon's life. Let's read it together. Verse 41. So two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? So, Jesus tells a story about two people who were in debt. One owed 500 denarii, and what we learn is that a denarii was equal to about one day's wage. So, we're talking about almost two years' worth of wages that this guy owed the moneylender thousands of dollars, or whatever, that was 70,000, let's just say. A lot of money. And then you have this other person who owed a tenth of that, 50 denarii, about two months' worth of wages maybe, say, $7,000. And what we know about them is that they had a couple things in common. They both owed money they couldn't repay. Um, They both were forgiven completely of their debt. But the difference was they just owed different amounts. And then Jesus ends his story with a question to Simon. The question was, which one of these men do you think loved the moneylender more? And the response Simon gives In verse 41, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now, at this moment, we enter into a turning point of our story. Because Jesus is about to explain what he means by this story. He's about to lay down the law, if you will. He's going to share a kingdom principle and kind of go right in the face of Simon and also the woman, and say, here's what I meant by this. And sometimes Jesus' parables leave you a little like, what did that mean? He doesn't leave any question in this one. He explains it completely. It's interesting that he, he got the answer right when Jesus asked the question. He judged correctly, because to this point, he hasn't judged anything correctly. Simon has misjudged the woman, he's misjudged Jesus And it's good he got this one right. And when Jesus asks you a question, you like to get it right. That's a lot of pressure. Think about it. He he got it right. Um, So let's dive into Jesus' application. Uh, In a moment, let me ask you a question. What if we could jump in a time machine and go back to this dinner party and we could go in with our reporter hat on our microphone and ask the woman this question? In the story Jesus told, which person do you think he was referring to that applied to you? How do you think she would answer that? You know, if you're like me, I would think she would very humbly say, well, I'm definitely the person who owed the 500. I don't know who the person who owed the 50 is, but I'm the one that owed a great debt. In fact, I owe a thousand, much more. I'm so grateful for Jesus' forgiveness, right? You kind of expect that from her in her humble posture. And what if you could walk around the table and address Simon and say, excuse me, sir, but who do you think Jesus was referring to you? The person who owed 500 or 50? How do you think he would answer? I wouldn't be surprised if he said, well, not the person who owed 500. You know, that's obviously the woman. Jesus just explained that. So I guess I'm the person who owed 50. Maybe, maybe I owe nothing. And it's clear to me that he really doesn't understand His need for forgiveness, whereas the woman does. Well, let's see what Jesus had to say about this. Uh, When he turned toward, then he turned toward the woman, verse 44, and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stop kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has for- been forgiven little, loves little. Another kingdom principle that jumps out at me as I think about Simon and his response, is that when we ignore our sin, it inhibits our love for God and our love for others. Ignoring our sin only inhibits our love for God and love for others. You see, Simon was stuck in an old religious system. And his understanding was that if I do right, then I'll be right with God. He based his righteousness on his actions and what he did. And what Jesus does in this understanding of the gospel and these kingdom principles, he smashes that old system and says, no, that's not how it works. He said, in the kingdom of God, this new day, it works like this. First, you have a right faith in God, which results in forgiveness, which results in being right with God. He turns the system on its head. And you realize reading through here that Simon really doesn't get it. He doesn't get that... His lack of love for Jesus and this woman are an indication that he has not been forgiven. He doesn't even see a need for forgiveness. He doesn't even see Jesus as the one who could forgive him. He really is clueless on this. And probably the greatest tragedy is he's unaware of his sin and his need for forgiveness. You see, we can't declare ourselves righteous. It doesn't work that way. Only God can determine righteousness. And when we start thinking that what we do makes us right, we get prideful and we start categorizing people. And isn't it interesting? People are always in a category lower than us. It's an indication something's wrong in our heart. It's not how to think about it. Jesus goes on to explain that when we think we've done something in our own abilities, it's an indication we're missing something. That we have sin and we need forgiveness. So, if living right doesn't fix our problem with God, then what does? Well, I think it's very clear from this passage that sinners are freed from their debt through faith in Jesus. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom here and how it works. In fact, Jesus is redefining everything. He's redefining debt. Forgiveness, justice, faith, righteousness. And he's saying that all those things are now measured differently. So pay attention. He's saying this is how the kingdom works. And what Jesus does is he puts uh, our condition before God in terms of debt and forgiveness. We have a debt and it needs to be forgiven. We are all in debt to God. We all have sin. And our sin separates us from God. It's as if our sin creates a grand canyon sized chasm, putting us on one side and God is on the other. And we have a need to be reunited with our Father. But there's a problem. And the problem is sin. And something has to be done with our sin. So if you have your backpack on and it's full of your sins, it doesn't matter if you have five, fifty, five million. No amount of effort will allow you to jump across that Grand Canyon to get to God because we can't do it in our effort. No, it requires the act of God to build a bridge to us to reunite us. And he did that through Jesus Christ. The cross is the bridge. And through admitting that we are sinners and putting our faith in Jesus, we're forgiven. And then we can be reunited with God. And so I look at Simon and he's thinking he can jump across the Grand Canyon where this woman is clearly aware that she cannot. She's putting and depending upon Jesus Christ. So I love the fact that Jesus doesn't gloss over this woman's sin. He doesn't. He says her sins are many. She has many sins. He doesn't ignore the sin. Well, then what do we do with that? Well, he gives us the answer. Jesus is the answer for our sin. So yes, we have to point out the reality we're sinful, but we have this great gift of forgiveness and grace of Christ to remove it. But we have to trust Him for it. So, I love the fact that Jesus comes right and says it. In verse 48, Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If Simon doubts in any way that Jesus is a prophet, or thinks he's a prophet, this clears it up. Jesus is clearly declaring forgiveness of sins. That's something that only God can do. Jesus is clearly equating himself with God. He was the God man. Jesus was the Messiah that anointed one that the Old Testament talked about that would come, this leader who would deliver Israel, would bring salvation to the whole world. Jesus was it. He was the chosen one. He wasn't a prophet. He was the prophet. And he became the answer to our separation with God. And so we see Simon and these Pharisees and they've rejected this new plan of God. They said, no, we don't want it. But then we have this other beautiful picture of a woman who gets it, who knows her need. She knows she's sinful. And she humbly comes to Christ, puts her faith in him, and is forgiven. And then out of this forgiveness is this beautiful display that Jesus says, because you've been forgiven much, you love much. Simon, you have not loved me. This woman, Simon, look at this woman. She is washed my feet with her tears and wiped it with her hair simon you didn't even give me a cup of water to wash my feet when i came to your home and by the way that was a very common custom in that day in a day when their sewers ran through their streets when you came to a home you would be greeted usually by a servant or maybe a slave and your feet would be washed before entering simon you didn't even do that for me simon look at this woman This woman, since I came in, hasn't stopped kissing my feet. Simon, you didn't even give me the common customary kiss when I came to your home, which was common. Not a lip lock, but you know, one of those kind of on the side kisses, one of these. Very common when you greeted someone or when you said goodbye or when you wanted to honor someone of importance. Simon, you you didn't even offer me a greeting. He said, Simon, look at this woman. She's anointing my feet with this perfume. And Simon, when I came in, you didn't even offer me oil for my head or my feet, which was common in that day as well. Olive oil is kind of the common household item. It was used for cooking and for fuel and for medical purposes and for dry skin. And they put it on their head. It was also a way of honoring someone. Most of the Jewish festivals and feasts involve anointing the head of the leader of the home. Simon, you didn't even do this basic customary honor. And look at this woman. I love the fact that Jesus turns toward the woman. It's as if he's just affirming who she is. He's accepting her worship and her gratitude. She goes from being in the background kind of to Jesus' back and now she's the center of attention. I love that. She's forgiven and freed. And he affirms it. So Simon She loves me. You don't. Just in his face. Simon, your actions declare that you've not been forgiven. You need forgiveness. So, the final kind of kingdom principle that jumps out to me as I look at this woman, even as I look over chapter 8, those first three verses, those other women who were impacted by Christ, we see that a heart that's been changed by God responds with love and generosity. When you've been impacted by the grace of Christ, you respond with love and service and generosity. We're so overwhelmed with what God has done for us. We're so grateful that it forces us to our knees to worship God and thank him. It motivates and encourages and inspires us to use our our time, our energy, our resources, our very life and leverage it for his kingdom because of what he's done for us. That is the natural response of one who's been impacted by grace. And it's important that we don't uh, confuse the order here. Uh, look, Look at verse 47 with me where he says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. That little word for... It's a preposition. It can actually be translated in different ways. And there's a bit of a controversy about this passage. Uh, There's some groups, and there's one religious Bible that translates that because. And what they're doing is they're saying that her many sins were forgiven because she loved much. In other words, they're saying, God looked down, saw this woman, and she was being very loving, and so he decided, well, because you're loving, I'm going to forgive you. That's actually not what this is saying. As you read through the entire text to the end, you see that the reason she was forgiven was because of her faith. Your faith has saved you. So actually, it comes faith first, followed by forgiveness, followed by love. And that's kind of the road to life in the kingdom. It's faith in Christ, salvation, forgiveness, which results in our love and service to God. That's the order. And it's important we not get those out of, out of whack. Because if you do, you begin thinking you can do something to earn God's grace when we cannot. So as we wrap this up, we kind of come to the question, so what does this mean for our lives? Well, let me ask you a question. Which one of these people, Simon or the woman, do you most identify with? My guess is, there's some here today who would say, that woman, I tell you, I've been waiting for a fresh start. I'm ready for that. And if that's you today, I want to encourage you, put your faith in Christ. His grace is being offered to you today. Say yes, receive it, and hold on for an incredible journey with God. Most of us wouldn't say, well, I'm I'm Simon, right? Who's going to do that? But if we're honest... If we're honest, most of us can identify with him to some degree, right? His attitude toward her, toward this woman, his categorizing people, putting himself above, I do it, I'm guilty. And I'm reminded that as followers of Christ, we have to remember the price of sin. Because our sin required a death. It should have been our death. But Jesus took our place and died on the cross. Paid a huge price for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And when we remember that, that humbles us, right? That puts you on your knees thinking, thank you, thank you, God. Salvation has nothing to do with us or what we do. You see, there aren't categories of sinners. There aren't little sinners and big sinners. There's just sinners. There aren't categories of sin, well, this is worse and that. In God's mind, sin is sin. So there's only two kind of sinners in the world. Those that have been forgiven and those that haven't. The only difference between those of us who are following Christ and those that aren't, we've been forgiven and they haven't. And they're waiting on us to come tell them. So we have to be careful about playing these games of thinking we're better than other people. We're not. It's only by the grace of God that we're in Christ, following and lastly, I think a clear implication for me in this passage is that, as believers in Christ, we must, we must move towards sinners, just like Jesus did. Jesus smashes this idea of separatism in this Jewish culture, this idea that we had to distance ourselves from people who were far from God. Jesus turns that upside down. And says no. We who have been forgiven have the gospel of grace, the good news. We must take it to them and move toward those that need Jesus, not away from them. And then offer this good news of grace so they too can accept it and be changed forever. I pray that you have been confronted with this beautiful story of God's grace. And pray you'll leave here refreshed with this truth or ready to believe in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for this incredible gift you've offered us, this grace, this salvation that comes through faith in Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you, that you give them the boldness to trust you even now in this moment. And Father, for those of us following you, we pray for courage to move toward those far from you to have a right understanding, Father, of how we stand before you forgiven and in need and in debt to you forever. And may we be filled with the joy of our salvation that leads to serving you, loving you by serving others, that you may be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.